Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and lover of film. For the very first episode of the show, we're going to be talking about a film that is perhaps one of the most important horror films of all time. Not only that, but it is a film that holds a very special place in my heart as a film goer, for reasons that we will get into later in the show. It's a film with perhaps more iconic moments than any other modern horror film. It has inspired obsessive fans around the world to dissect and analyse it over and over. It has become embedded into popular memory, appearing in everything from The Simpsons to Ready Player One. I am, of course, talking about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Before we dive into this very special film, a quick recap. Jack Torrance is a struggling writer living with his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny. They take on a winter caretaker role at the remote Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains. The hotel closes every winter and requires maintenance during the winter months, so Jack takes his family to the Overlook to spend the winter months isolated together, looking after the hotel while he works on his new writing project. When they arrive, the manager informs Jack that the previous caretaker had killed himself and his family in the hotel. After Danny has a seizure at home, Wendy tells their doctor about an incident when Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder after coming home drunk to find his papers scattered across the floor, an incident that compels Jack to quit drinking altogether. Before leaving for the winter, Head chef at the Overlook, Dick Halloran, talks to Danny about their telepathic ability that they seem to share, something he calls being able to shine, and the cause of Danny's seizure. He also tells Danny that the hotel shines due to traumatic events from the past and to steer clear of room 237. Danny begins having visions, including that of two twin girls, appearing to have been murdered with an axe. Jack's writing is getting nowhere, and his behaviour becomes more and more erratic. He repeatedly snaps at his wife and wanders the empty hotel corridors. Danny cannot contain his curiosity, and despite Halloran's warnings, enters room 237 after finding the door ajar. While we don't see what happens to him, he appears to his parents with bruising around his neck, unable to talk to them. Jack goes to investigate, finding what at first appears to be a beautiful young woman in the tub seducing him, before she reveals herself to be the rotted corpse of an old woman. Is she a ghost? Is she real? The bruises on Danny's neck seem to indicate that there is something walking through the overlook that hurt Danny. Despite seemingly having found proof of Danny's attacker, Jack returns back to their room and tells Wendy that he found nothing, and that the only explanation is that he did it to himself. Wendy accuses Jack of inflicting the bruises, and after snapping at her again, he retreats to an empty bar. Lloyd, the bartender, appears to Jack and offers him a drink, ending his sobriety. The Gold Room is full of ghostly people for the 4th of July ball, and waiter Delbert Grady informs Jack that Halloran is attempting to reach Danny via their ability to shine, and that he has to correct his wife and son, just like Grady had done in the past. Wendy finds the manuscript that Jack has been working on this whole time. All work and no play make Jack a dull boy typed countless times on a huge stack of paper. Jack threatens her life, and Wendy knocks him out with a baseball bat, locking him in the pantry. She attempts to leave the hotel with Danny, only to discover that Jack has broken both the phones and the snowcrawler. 
Jack is freed from the pantry by Grady and begins to chase his family through the hotel with an axe. Halloran makes his way through the snow to try and get back to the Overlook, only to be killed by Jack with the axe in the foyer. Jack follows Danny out into the hedge maze, where Danny outsmarts him by retracing his footprints in the snow. Wendy runs through the hotel, trying to find Danny, and witnesses a litany of visions, much like Danny's before her. Jack is outsmarted by Danny, who jumps into Halloran's snowcrawler with Wendy, leaving Jack to freeze to death in the hedge maze. We end on an old black and white photo in the overlook of the 4th of July ball from 1921. Standing in the middle of the crowd, smiling, is Jack Torrance. I know all my whole life So, the way this show is going to work is before we dive into the history of this film, uh, the director, the writer, the actors, the pre-production, the critical reception, the score, all those good things that we're going to get into, um, which will be the bulk of the show, um, what I also want to do is share about uh, my first experience seeing these films, um, but also my most recent experience revisiting them. Um, and how those two experiences might be different. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that this is an incredibly important film to me, so let me explain why. To do so, I have to talk a little bit about um, a little certain someone by the name of Stephen King. Now, I have always been a huge reader. I've read lots and lots of books my entire life, um, and I credit my parents for instilling that in me at a very young age. Um, as we will uh, talk about, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come up a lot on this show, um, as we talk about, particularly when we talk about horror films, um, but as young children, whether it's in films or books or music or just general behaviour patterns, the forbidden fruit is often the thing that you desire the most. And I had been told by my parents that Stephen King was off-limits for the time being. I think I would have been nine or ten at the time when I first heard who this person was. And uh, I think probably before I even knew any of the stories that were associated with the name Stephen King, I was aware that he wrote scary stories that were inappropriate and gory and scary and frightening and confronting Age 13, though, the first Stephen King novel that I picked up and read cover to cover was The Shining. Um, I was aware that there was a film as well, um, but this was probably before I really discovered my love of film, and so I probably wouldn't even have known who Stanley Kubrick was. Um, I certainly had no concept of the difference between the book and the film, um, and the conflict and the tension between those two versions of the story. But I picked it up. Um, I think I already had 
um, a growing interest in the supernatural um, and was just totally engrossed by it. Horror fiction is something that I'm still incredibly interested in and love reading and love writing. Um, And so Stephen King's novel of The Shining um, was hugely important for me in that regard. Um, And I think I read it three or four times cover to cover um, and just couldn't get enough of it. Of course, what that led to was me becoming interested in seeing the film. Now, in Australia, the way that the rating systems work is there are two ratings at which um, it is a legal requirement to uh, have parental consent to see them at a certain age and under. And The Shining here in Australia is rated MA15+. And I was 13 or 14 at the time. And I don't know how I got away with this, but I knew that my school library had a copy of The Shining. And I went in and I asked, can I please borrow The Shining? The way that the films worked at the library was you had to go up to the desk and ask and they'd go back into the, uh, into the storeroom where they had all the films um, stored and they'd go and find it for you. And I had a really great relationship with this librarian um, and she 100% knew how old I was and that I was not 15. Um, but the first question she asked wasn't, how old are you? It was, have you read the book? And it just so happened that I had the paperback in my bag on me at the time um, because I carried it around. Even after I'd read it cover to cover, I would open it up and and read passages from it um, when I had spare moments um, around reading other books at the same time as well. And I said yes, and I pulled it out and I showed her this slightly beaten up copy of The Shining. And she recognized that um, from her point of view, I guess I had earned the right to see the film. And she said to me, she challenged me, now, I don't want you to go into this expecting to watch a beat-for-beat adaptation of the book, because you will be disappointed. So I borrowed the DVD, and I I took it home, and I remember that DVD sitting in my bag for the rest of the day, um, felt like it was burning a hole in my bag, I couldn't think about anything else, my attention was entirely on the fact that I had a copy of The Shining, and how was I going to go home and watch it? Because I wasn't 15 and my parents, up until that point, I don't think had let me see an MA15 rated movie yet. So I spent the whole day at school, probably not focusing on, on classes that much at all. Went home, uh, got my laptop, uh, put the DVD in, put the headphones on and watched The Shining for the first time. Now, I think back on this experience now as, as a sort of more hardened cinema-goer that doesn't really get scared by anything much anymore, um, and I hold this experience very dear because this was the first really positive experience of being scared by a film. I had experiences of genuine trauma as a young child, seeing things that I was way too young to see, um, whether it's by accident or is on TV or with friends or whatever it was, um, and experiences of having nightmares and not being able to sleep and, and really unenjoyable experiences of being scared. But for the first time I watched a horror film and was scared out of my mind, but felt like this was a life-giving exciting experience that I was really, really enjoying. And at the time, I couldn't really tell you exactly what it was about it. All I could tell you was that this film was magic, and it was working its magic on me in a way that I had not experienced before. I was experiencing feelings that I had not experienced before watching a film. So I think over the week that I had that DVD rented from the school library, I probably watched it three or four times. Um, and it's one of those films now where I think I've actually lost track of how many times I've seen it. But I wanted to uh, briefly talk again. This is probably longer than any other section will do about um, my first and most recent experiences watching the film. Um, But I think it's important for me um, to speak openly about the impact this film has had on me because the last time I saw this film was in October of 2021. Now, in Sydney, Australia, between June and October of 2021, Sydney was in lockdown. 
And at the announcement of um, lockdowns lifting in Sydney and New South Wales, we were given the date ahead of time. I immediately, one of the first things I wanted to do was go to a movie theatre with people and watch a movie in a dark room filled with strangers. So I went and saw two films the first day that lockdown lifted in New South Wales in October of 2021. I went and saw Shang-Chi. And then in the evening, I went and saw a 4K screening of The Shining by myself at a really great theatre called The Ritz in Randwick. And I had an experience watching that film, which, like I said, I've seen countless times and can almost recite the entire film verbatim just by memory. I was sitting maybe 20 or 30 rows back in in the bottom seated section at at the Ritz, watching The Shining in a pretty packed theatre. It was opening night, first, first evening showing films again after lockdown. And I remember five or six rows in front of me on the aisle were a father and what looked like an 11 or 12 year old girl, his daughter. And I could tell that they were father and daughter because she was spending most of the film clutching her father's arm next to her on the armrest. Now, we'll get into just the long list of iconic horror moments that there are in this film. But one of the most, in fact, arguably the most iconic, is the vision of the elevator doors opening and a flood of blood pouring out of the elevator flooding the corridor and engulfing the camera. This 11 or 12-year-old got up and ran screaming up the aisle to the back of the theatre. She then gradually made her way back down the aisle and spent the rest of the movie watching the film seated in the aisle, clutching the armrest of the chair next to her. Something that happens to a film after you've seen it as many times as I've seen The Shining is that its most memorable moments begin to lose their impact. This is why it is so important to see films with other people, with strangers, friends, family, anyone, really. It forces you to see the film through their eyes, and not just yours, sometimes allowing you to see the film a fraction removed from the subjectivity of your built-up immunity to the film. This moment in The Shining had turned into exactly that, A scene in a film that I had seen countless times, that I could talk about on a technical level, on a cultural level, and even on the level of the deep existential dread that the film instills on the viewer. But I had forgotten just how frightening The Shining was, and seeing the film fresh through the eyes of a 12-year-old put me right back into that memory of seeing the film for the first time on a laptop, headphones on, not quite believing that I was finally seeing it. Come out wherever you are. Then I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in.
It's now time for me to introduce us to a main player in this story. A young up-and-comer in the world of publishing named Stephen King. After his mother's death, King moved to Boulder, Colorado with his wife, Tabitha. His first two novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot, had been huge successes and a film adaptation of Carrie was already in the works. He decided that he wanted a different background for his next novel after his first two had been so heavily influenced by his home state of Maine, and supposedly after blindly pointing at an atlas of the US, he decided on Colorado. On October 30th, 1974, Stephen King and his wife Tabitha checked into the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. They were the only two guests in the hotel that night. King says that when we arrived... They were just getting ready to close for the season, and we found ourselves the only guests in the place, with all those long, empty corridors. King and his wife had dinner that evening in the grand dining room, totally alone. They were offered one choice for dinner, the only meal still available. Taped orchestral music played in the room, and theirs was the only table set for dining. Again, from King. Except for our table... All the chairs were up on the tables. So the music is echoing down the hall and, I mean, it was like God had put me there to see and hear all those things. And by the time I went to bed that night, I had the whole book in my mind. After dinner, his wife decided to turn in, but King took a walk around the empty hotel. He ended up in the bar and was served drinks by a bartender named Grady. That night, says King... I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair looking out of the window at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. As with so many other Stephen King novels, it's easy to draw parallels between King himself and the protagonist of the novel. Like Stephen King, Jack Torrance is a writer looking for inspiration, someone with a mean booze problem, and someone tormented by flashes of resentment and hatred towards his family, something he has spoken publicly about being quite ashamed of. As such, the thematic heart of the novel is very much made explicit through Jack Torrance's relationship with his family and his relationship with alcohol. It is also much more upfront and unambiguous in its depictions of the supernatural. It's clear in the novel what the Overlook Hotel wants. It wants to absorb Danny Torrance to take on his shine, and it's using the vulnerable Jack, who is at his heart a good person, to achieve this goal. There are things like the aforementioned fire hose, some overexcited hedge animals, a territorial dogman, and an equally territorial woman in room 217, not 237 as it appears in the film. It's made clear that the goings-on in the Overlook are engineered by supernatural and external forces, something that, as we will come to shortly, is not so clear in the film adaptation. The book is released in 1977 to widespread acclaim, and The Shining became King's first hardback bestseller. Brian De Palma's 1976 adaptation of Carrie was also a huge success, so talks immediately began around a possible film adaptation of The Shining. This is where we cross over to meet the other main player in this story, a director by the name of Stanley Kubrick. Well, he's just different because I can imagine yeah. people saying to Kubrick, you know, you're not really letting us into Jack as a, a human being. And then Kubrick just said, get away from me. <laughs> get away from me. <laughs> yeah. People must have said it to him. Like, uh, we're not, the, the wife is strange. What you're asking Shelly to do, by the way, her hair is falling out because she can't, she's losing her mind playing this woman because yeah. it's not a person, it's not a human being. Badly and he written, said, yeah. and he said, uh, do me a favor, Dorothy. Get the fuck away. Get in the the other room. Whoever said this to him, he said, just get the fuck away from me. I'm doing this. You go do that in another movie. (laughs) 
I'm gonna do, and in fact they did. Stephen King like made it again with the guy from Wing. He made it with Stephen Weber. He went from yeah, Jack Nicholson. Because he doesn't he gives a shit what Stephen King thinks of The Shining. The Shining is not has nothing to do with Stephen King, who I think is a really cool writer. It's a whole other category. I'm not doing the thing that you want me to do. I'm not doing a father who changes. I don't. It's yes. boring. It's do, done. It's been done a thousand times. So what? It's a very good way to make a movie. Go watch one. There's many. He's we, like, I'm making the movie from the point of view of the house. We will no doubt intersect with Kubrick again many times on this show. But today, we run into him in about 1976. Kubrick had long wanted to make a film about Napoleon, going as far as to cast Jack Nicholson in the lead role. It was going to be his most ambitious and audacious film yet, but after Barry Lyndon was a relative financial failure for Warner Brothers, funding fell through for his Napoleon picture. Kubrick's Napoleon picture is now one of the most famous films that never made it through production, and the pre-production material still available today is incredibly fascinating to look at and wonder what sort of film it would have been was Kubrick allowed to continue down the vein of prestigious historical epics that he clearly wanted to pursue. Instead, he now needed to find another project to work on. Supposedly, Kubrick would read as much as he could in as wide a net as possible when looking for material for films, looking for things that he thought opened up cinematic possibilities. In an American film magazine piece, it notes how Kubrick had acquired as many books as he could find on the supernatural and would sit in his office reading them. If, after a few pages, he didn't find it interesting, he would throw the book across the room at the wall. Apparently, Kubrick's secretary at the time had noticed that the sounds of books hitting the wall had stopped. When she went in to see what it was that he was reading, it was Stephen King's The Shining. John Kelly, an executive at Warner Brothers, had sent Kubrick a manuscript of The Shining, and he found the novel to be totally engrossing. Speaking about the novel, Kubrick said, I found The Shining to be compulsive reading. I thought the plot, ideas, and structures were much more imaginative than anything I've ever read in the genre. Warner Brothers had bought the rights to King's book shortly after it was released, and King had even sold them a screenplay of his own as part of the handing over of the rights. Despite this, Kubrick had no interest in King's screenplay, and never even read it, nor did he have any interest in collaborating with King on a new screenplay. Instead, he wanted to use the novel as a launch pad for his own screenplay, turning it into something much more cinematic. He approached novelist Diane Johnson, who shares a screenwriting credit with Kubrick, to collaborate with in the process of adapting The Shining to the screen. They prepped and talked about the story together for months before writing a single word of the screenplay, spending time to get to know the characters, the setting, the motivations, and the mythology of the film. They lent heavily on Bruno Bettelstein's The Uses of Enchantment and the works of Sigmund Freud, someone we'll come back to later, in this process of fleshing out the world of the film. When speaking about this exhaustive and meticulous preparation, Diane Johnson said, It must be plausible use no cheap tricks, have no holes in the plot, no failures of motivation. It must be completely scary. It's well known, too, that the screenplay was still being constantly tinkered with during production. There is, of course, that famous quote from Jack Nicholson in the behind-the-scenes footage. I quit using my script. I just take the ones they type up each day. <laughs> Aren't you exaggerating a little bit? No. <laughs> Which brings us to the performances. At this point in his career, Jack Nicholson is already a megastar. In terms of iconic actors in cinema, Jack Nicholson is on cinema's Mount Rushmore. He has already appeared in films like Easy Rider, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Chinatown, but arguably it is his next performance in The Shining that cements him into the annals of film greats. From the very first scene, it is clear that this version of Jack Torrance is a disaster waiting to happen. Whereas Stephen King's portrayal of Jack is a man who loves his family and is fundamentally a decent guy, from the very first scene in the film, we get the sense that this man finds his family to be nothing more than a nuisance and is clearly insane. What are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's 
thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Stay away from me. Why? I just want to go back to my room. We never once see him show what we think is genuine affection towards Danny or his wife, Wendy which is part of what contributes to the film's ambiguity around the exact nature of the evil. On the one hand, the hotel could very well be influencing Jack, like it does in the novel. But on the other hand, we are never shown any good evidence that says he wouldn't have it in him to simply commit horrific acts against his family, especially when isolated in such a large, isolated, liminal space such as The Overlook. This is perhaps the biggest reason why Stephen King famously hated Kubrick's adaptation. There is a key plot difference between the book and the film that is a great metaphor for this gulf between the two texts. In the book, the Overlook Hotel burns down. In the film, the Overlook Hotel remains intact, while Jack freezes to death out in the hedge maze. Compared to King's story of genuine warmth and humanity being taken over by external forces of evil, Kubrick's adaptation is noticeably colder placing a distance between the central characters that at once puts the audience in the position of an outsider. I mean, put it this way, has anyone ever watched the film and rooted for Jack Nicholson? His performance is what gives the film its impenetrably icy exterior, making it incredibly difficult by design for the audience to empathise with whom we naturally assume will be the protagonist of the story. Opposite Jack Nicholson is Shelley Duvall, as Wendy Torrance, one of, if not the, most divisive and controversial castings in modern horror cinema. King himself was immediately sceptical of Duvall, mostly because he wrote the character of Shelley as a blonde, and Duvall is a natural brunette. But most of all, the common criticism of her performance is that it is too over-the-top and theatrical, that her descent into hysterics leaves her feeling less like a fully-formed character and more like a stereotypical final girl, a trope that would come to be cemented into horror mythology as the 1980s continued into slasher territory post-Halloween and Friday the 13th. Why? I just want to go back to my room. Why? Well, I'm very confused. I just... You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more gonna do you now? Stay away from me. Please! Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me! Wendy? Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. I'm gonna bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> Stay away from me. Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me. Stay away. This is where I begin to feel uncomfortable with calling Kubrick a genius, because it has also been well documented that he emotionally manipulated Shelley Duvall into such a heightened hysterical performance. She would feel isolated and ignored on set feeling like Kubrick and Nicholson had their own little clique without her, and was subjected to take after take after take. It was Kubrick's intent to push her performance past any sort of pre-prepared emotional state and into real desperation and panic. By forcing the entire cast, not just Duval, into doing sometimes upwards of 140 takes, he was asking his performers to perform more and more insane takes, to the point that they would try just about anything in an attempt to move on to the next setup. This was incredibly difficult for all the performers, but reportedly this was particularly hard on Duval. 
her performance takes on a real sense of desperation and hysteria for me as a result, because you can see through the performance into someone desperately trying to appease someone who has them on the end of a piece of string. I often wonder what would happen if someone like Jordan Peele did that to an actress of Jennifer Lawrence's calibre today. As soon as that news broke, they would never work again. So what actually makes The Shining a classic? What about it is reason to continue to revisit it in 2022, more than 40 years later? There are technical elements of the filmmaking that, like with almost all of Kubrick's films, are masterful and worth studying in their own right. For instance, the revolutionary use of Steadicam to put the audience in an ambiguously menacing point of view, asking us to identify with an evil that we never truly understand. The film itself was designed with the Steadicam in mind. Sets like the hedge maze and the labyrinth-like hotel had no flyaway walls or dolly smooth floors, so long sections of the film would have been largely unshootable in the way that it was intended without the Steadicam. But as is characteristic of Kubrick, simply setting up the Steadicam and shooting wasn't enough. Garrett Brown spoke about his experiences working on The Shining with an early model of the Steadicam in a 1980 issue of American Cinematographer. He said, I began the picture with years of Steadicam use behind me, and with the assumption that I could do with it whatever anyone could reasonably demand. I realised by the afternoon of the first day's work that here was a whole new ballgame, and that the word reasonable was not in Kubrick's lexicon. Opening day at the Steadicam Olympics consisted of 30 or so takes of an elaborate travelling shot in the lobby set, interspersed with bollockings for the air conditioning man because it was 110 degrees in the artificial daylight, produced by 700,000 watts of light outside the windows, and complaints about the quality of the remote TV image. Although I had provided a crude video transmitter so that Kubrick could get an idea of the framing, I quickly realised that when Stanley said that the crosshairs were to be on someone's left nostril, that no other nostril would do. And I further realised that the crudeness of the transmitted image simply prolonged the arguments as to the location of the dreaded crosshairs. Had I known on that first day that we would still be debating questions of framing a year later, long after the air conditioning worked, I might have wished to become an air conditioning man or a caterer. It's not just that this film used Steadicam extensively in new and exciting ways. What's exciting about the Steadicam use in The Shining is something that we heard Louis C.K. saying earlier in this episode. This is a film from the perspective of The Overlook. The POV of this film isn't any of the characters. It isn't Danny's, it isn't Wendy's, and it certainly isn't Jack's. By putting the audience behind the eyes of an unseen force floating smoothly through the corridors of the hotel, we subconsciously begin to align ourselves with whatever it is that is haunting the large, empty rooms and corridors. When I stop to think more about this, the more I feel that this film begins to make sense to me. We aren't meant to identify with any of the characters, because The Overlook doesn't identify with any of the characters. The Overlook sees them as chess pieces to be moved around until it gets what it wants out of them. And so that is how they are presented to us. This is where a lot of the discomfort comes from in watching this film. There is an uncomfortable coldness and distance that seeps through every scene. None of the human interactions feel genuine or warm. At best, they feel stilted and performative, and at worst, they are intensely uncomfortable and confrontational. Wendy, let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the, the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? The way that this film plays with perspective extends beyond simply its use of Steadicam and brings us to another technical quality of the film that separates it from the pack. This is a film that intentionally fucks with its audience, and not in cheap, annoying ways. The Shining fucks with its audience in really subtle, sometimes subliminal ways. Take the scene where Jack meets Lloyd the bartender for the first time. Hi, Lloyd. 
A little slow tonight, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. What'll it be? I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd. Because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there till next April. So here's what. You slip me a bottle of bourbon, a little glass, and some ice. You can do that, can't you, Lloyd? You're not too busy, are you? <laughs> no, sir. I'm not busy at all. Good man. You set him up, and I'll knock him back, Lloyd, one by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. On the surface, this scene is creepy in a purely aesthetic way. This barman appears out of nowhere, and the subtext of Jack selling his soul to the hotel, some would say, is unnerving by itself. But the perspective this film places us in takes this already creepy scene and transforms it into something more. Initially, we see Lloyd behind the bar for the first time from Jack's point of view. This is a subjective view of what is happening, and as per the rules of filmmaking and visual literacy, this could very well all be taking place in Jack's head. But before we cut away... Kubrick dollies backwards, bringing Nicholson into the shot and transforming the perspective from subjective into objective. With nothing more than one simple camera movement, our sense of stability in the scene is completely unhinged, and a creepy sequence becomes one that asks you to reconsider the very nature of the evil in the hotel. This is then once again challenged by Wendy entering the Golden Ballroom to find Jack sitting at the bar, alone. Kubrick plays more subliminal tricks on the audience in equally as subtle ways with the design of the set itself. As outlined in a video by Rob Ager for Collative Learning that will be linked below, spatial impossibilities in the set design of the Overlook Hotel were discovered when a video game designer attempted to replicate the hotel for a level of Duke Nukem. As a result of these spatial impossibilities, the level design for the game doesn't match that of the hotel in the film in order to make the level continually playable. While some may pass this off as being the result of movie trickery or the realities of film sets, this has actually been confirmed by set designers as intentional. This may not seem like a big deal, but once you begin to notice these inconsistencies and impossibilities, even on a subconscious level, the hotel itself starts to take on a life of its own, and if it hadn't already, become its own character in the film. There are windows through which we can see the outside world that should in fact face into another room. Corridors that wrap around on themselves in impossible ways. Rooms that shouldn't be able to exist within the space presented to us. In a purely practical sense, it's a masterclass in set design and editing, and the fact that this deeply unsettling detail often goes unnoticed is a testament to just how immersive and complete the preparation and execution of this film was, all in service of the story and the atmosphere of the film. Which brings us to another thing that is endlessly fascinating about The Shining. The fans. If there were any need to provide evidence for the way in which The Shining evokes such a palpable sense of mystery and curiosity in its audience, look no further than the documentary Room 237. By way of a quick disclaimer, I don't necessarily endorse or stand by any of the opinions depicted in that film, but it is fascinating to see how seriously people take this film and just how deep they are willing to go to find meaning in it. To name just a few of the theories that fans have come up with about The Shining... It's a coded apology from Kubrick for being involved in faking the moon landing for NASA. Sounds crazy until you look at some of the details, like Danny's Apollo 11 sweater. It's a film about Native American genocide. It's a film about the Holocaust. It's a retelling of the Minotaur mythology. It's a film about child abuse. All theories that seem at first glance to be nuts, but have been studied and researched by fans of The Shining to the point that it is sometimes hard to argue with the evidence that they pull out of the film. To be clear, I'm not making comments as to whether or not The Shining was intentional about addressing any of these things, but what I do think is that it is a credit to this film that it has evoked such a passionate and enthusiastic response from its audience. It's evidence to just how mysterious and unknowable the film is, and the way in which the black hole at the heart of this film continues to suck people into it to this day. The Shining was released in the US on the same weekend as a small indie film called Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. 
Whereas Empire opened on 126 screens, The Shining only opened on 10. And its $622,000 opening weekend was the third highest of all time on less than 50 screens, behind the original Star Wars and The Rose. Compared to Empire's per-screen average gross on opening weekend of a bit over $50,000, The Shining took in a healthy $62,000 per screen on opening weekend. Despite being a relative financial success, especially after the financial failure that was Barry Lyndon, the critical reception of the film was initially mixed. In fact, both Kubrick himself and Shelley Duvall were nominated for Razzie Awards for Worst Director and Worst Actress. Janet Maslin for the New York Times wrote that the supernatural story knows frustratingly little rhyme or reason, and that even the film's most startling, horrific images seem overbearing and perhaps even irrelevant. Pauline Kael for The New Yorker wrote, Again and again, this movie leads us to expect something, almost promises it, and then disappoints us. At this point, it's also probably worth letting Stephen King himself take the floor for a second to explain his issues with the film. I have a real problem with The Shining, and uh, Stanley Kubrick knew that I had a problem with The Shining. Uh, I had a discussion with him beforehand. Uh, He said, Stephen, Stanley Kubrick here. Don't you agree that all stories of ghosts are fundamentally optimistic? I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if there are ghosts, it means we survive death, and that's fundamentally an optimistic view, isn't it? And I said, well, Mr. Kubrick, What about hell? And there was a long pause on the telephone line, and then he said in a very stiff and very different voice, I don't believe in hell. And I thought to myself, well, that's fine, but some of us do, and some of us believe that ghosts may survive, and that may be hell. And that was sort of where I was coming from with The Shining. But in the novel, The Shining, uh, Jack Torrance, is a difficult character, but he's fundamentally a a sympathetic character. And I always visualized him as a piece of metal that's bent first one way and the other by these malignant spirits who basically want his son because his son is a psychically powerful person. So I saw these all as warm characters, characters that were being threatened by forces from without, from ghosts, from real supernatural creatures. And the film is extremely cold. Stanley Kubrick saw the haunting as coming from Jack Torrance, from the Jack Nicholson character, whereas I always saw it from outside. So we had a fundamental difference of opinion about it. I always thought that the real difference between my take on it and Stanley Kubrick's take on it was this. In my novel, The Hotel Burns. In Kubrick's movie, The Hotel Freezes. It's a difference between warmth and cold. The images are striking, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Jack Nicholson's face in the doorway, his bearded, crazy, grinning face, he says, here's Johnny, which was his ad lib, and it became, you know, part of the movie. So the images are striking, but to me, that's surface, it's not substance. So I used to describe The Shining, the film, as something like a beautiful car that had no engine in it. Stephen King would go on to adapt his novel for a second time, this time as a three-hour miniseries starring Rebecca de Mornay. But in the years since, Kubrick's film has been reappraised as one of the most important horror films of the 20th century. Kubrick would only go on to make very few films after The Shining, and it stands tall amongst a number of other late-career masterpieces. The critic Mark Kermode describes the film as a Stephen King film for people who don't like Stephen King. When describing the film... Roger Ebert said, Kubrick delivers this uncertainty in a film where the actors themselves vibrate with unease, and that the movie is not about ghosts, but about madness and the energies it sets loose in an isolated situation, primed to magnify them.
And so, as our exploration of The Shining comes to a close, let's take a look back at the year in cinema that was 1980 and further trace this film's place in film history. Not long before the release of The Shining, Sir Alfred Hitchcock would pass away in his home at the age of 80. Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate is released in November, becoming one of the biggest box office bombs in cinema history, bankrupting United Artists and completely changing the way that studios and producers interacted with filmmakers, paving the way for a dramatic shift in film over the next 10 to 15 years. Friday the 13th is released, unashamedly and proudly attempting to cash in on the success of John Carpenter's Halloween two years previous. A fascinating film to look at in comparison to The Shining, as two very different takes on the horror template set up by Halloween. Films like Raging Bull, Dressed to Kill, The Fog, The Elephant Man and Caddyshack are all released as the studio system begins to shift and change. The top four films in terms of worldwide gross across the whole year are The Blues Brothers, Airplane or Flying High if you're from Australia, The Gods Must Be Crazy, and of course Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast, hopefully the first of many. I do also have to give a shout out to Cinema Tyler on YouTube and his video on The Shining, which was a huge help when researching this episode. I've linked to that video below. You can support this podcast by leaving a review or a like, or even better, you could just share it with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com, or you can find us on socials and get in touch there. Don't forget to check out the blog, where you can read pieces on film and continue the conversation about great films. That's linked below too. I'll see you next time, but until then, don't forget, if you go home with someone after a date and they have a copy of Jack and Jill on Blu-ray, just bail and ghost them. It's not worth it. Take care.